Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra here in Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 23rd of February, and the year is 2022, and welcome to the podcast. I'm doing the podcast because I have nothing better to do, which means it's a great thing to do. You understand how the syntax fits perfectly. We've been talking about insulin resistance, and I see no reason to um, avoid the issue. And so we will continue. Insulin resistance, I will remind you, <clears throat> is essentially a disrupted or corrupted response to insulin as a peptide hormone after it binds to its receptor. And this, of course, happens in many tissues in the body. Most significantly, we've been talking about the adipose and skeletal muscle. But I told you there are insulin receptors also on macrophages, and which is, might be interesting because those are leukocytes. But you also have insulin receptors in many other tissues, including even where you don't have insulin-dependent glucose uptake, <clears throat> such as in the central nervous system or in the liver or kidney. Um and also in the cardiac muscle, although there is some insulin-dependent glucose uptake in that system. And I can clarify that later, but right now we've been trying to really key in on insulin resistance in the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes. And that's what I really want to get into here. So you know you get insulin resistance, but primarily, again, skeletal muscle and adipose, where a lot of glucose is going to be taken in and utilized, right? So... With that inappropriate glucose uptake, you get corrupted glucose metabolism. And then this will lead to many other uh, malfunctions. One of the malfunctions back at the hormonal level will be hyperinsulinemia. You get hyperinsulinemia because you've still got plenty of circulating glucose. So it continues to stimulate the secretion of insulin from the pancreatic ductal cells known as the beta cells, right? And so you get hyperglycemia, of course, because glucose isn't being taken to the tissues. So eventually what happens is the pancreas can no longer produce insulin. And as I told you, you also get damage to the beta cells because of the enhanced amount of glucose and also free fatty acid which will cause the membrane of those cells to become um, dysfunctional at multiple levels. And I can go into a great deal of molecular detail about that, but not right now, because I still want to give you the, uh, the larger stage setting of type 2 diabetes. But suffice it to say that insulin, because of its multiple association with intracellular signaling um, that does, of course, primarily link to glucose uptake, that all of the metabolic pathways, catabolic and anabolic, and these include major bioenergetic systems such as glycolysis, fatty acid oxidation, amino acid transamination, as well as anabolic pathways such as the mTORC pathway for nascent protein synthesis, DNA synthesis, and preparation of the cell to go through 
mitosis, that is cellular division. Uh, because a membrane is needed for that. A lot of energy is needed for that in the form of ATP. So when glucose isn't taken up, uh, all of those systems can become corrupted. You get it, Quickly, you learn that sulfate is linked to glucose utilization. However, remember I told you last time, and I will stick with my um, very strong conviction about this, that diabetes is really not a disease about carbohydrate. It's a disease about lipid, and that's because carbohydrates' ultimate utilization, when it's not immediately burned for energy, is for the synthesis of triacylglycerol, and that ends up in visceral depot fat because we're oligenous organisms. <laughs> so the regulation of thermal homeostasis and bioenergetic homeostasis alone can be derived from understanding how lipid metabolism directly feeds from glucose utilization, but also controls glucose um, deposition and ultimately um, the final fate of glucose for maintaining the energetic state, even of systems like the central nervous system that primarily use glucose for the bioenergetics, right? For um, action potential driving neurotransmission. So one other thing I can mention to you now, and then we'll go into a lot of the detail later, is that insulin resistance, once again, <laughs> this hallmark of type 2 diabetes, will also increase the amount of uric acid in the blood. Of course, it is associated with obesity and dyslipidemia and hypertension, as I mentioned. But also, again, going into the cell, it, it's associated with mitochondrial dysfunction, and that includes reactive oxygen species generation, which also will then induce and associate directly with the unfolded protein response in the endoplasmic reticulum. And that will lead to a corruption of eicosanoid production, which can then lead to a stimulation of the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines from multiple cell lines. And this can then cause an inflammatory response. And then after the initial inflammatory response, you can get a hyperimmune activity. And this is why type 2 diabetes is directly linked to chronic inflammation. And we'll go into the detail of that. And I've done it in the past, but I, I enjoy doing it. So we'll do it again. Now, with all this background understanding of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and how lipid metabolism is intimately linked, it shouldn't surprise you the researchers have been looking at the diet for a long time uh, directly in association with obesity, but also with the composition of the diet, not just with the amount of kilocalories and caloric density, but I told you before on how carbohydrates and or lipids may be um, associated with the pathology of obesity directly from the diet. And so when you look at the composition of fatty acids, you know that there are saturated, 
monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fatty acids. And we went through those desaturation pathways. We just did that long arc of the covenant of those nine lectures in fatty acids. So I don't need to uh, retailer that suit right now. But I want you to keep that in mind, how fatty acid metabolism is absolutely essential to understand cellular regulation. And desaturation plays a major role. And then I led into, if you recall, sterile desaturase and how the production of oleic acid, the delta-9, 18-colon-1 delta-9 fatty acid, which is the product of sterile desaturase when steric acid is the substrate, which is the most common, the elongation product of palmitate, right, and as coaester, You'll recall that I linked that to a uh, association with ferritosis and apoptosis when we were deeply discussing oncogenic events. And I mentioned to you that metastatic cancer, and we were looking at stem cells, you recall, and we also looked at ovarian cancer cells, uh, pancreatic duct adenocarcinoma, and also hepatocellular carcinoma, uh, and also various kinds of breast cancer. We mentioned to you that all of those cancers had a heightened level of sterocoidesaturase 1 which meant a lot of oleic acid was being produced. And I told you how oleic acid had a role in controlling ceramide production versus sphingosine 1-phosphate, and that oleic acid could decrease the amount of apoptosis on one hand and ferritosis and necrotosis on the other hand. And when that happens, your cell fate is altered but also the ability for an oncogenic environment to generate pro-inflammatory systems because of the leakage of cellular contents associated with necrotosis and ferritosis. And that would be the direct effect of oleic acid. So high oleic acid will corrupt those programmed cell death phenomena that that can lead to a metastatic cancer. So you see how the literature that talks about monounsaturated fatty acids like oleate, which is part of the, quote, Mediterranean, unquote, diet, which I think is kind of a funny name. Uh, and that all includes things like using high levels of monounsaturated fatty acids, which are included in things like olive oil, right? Or even in some of the canola oils that have uh, more abundant oleic acid. So what I'm saying is that there has been a great deal in nutritional studies and biochemical studies looking at the beneficial effects of oleic acid. And of course, when you dig deep into the literature, you're going to find contradictions about whether or not oleic acid is all that beneficial. And I already told you about how it's directly related to oncogenesis and metastasis. But also, as it turns out, oleic acid isn't always a positive player, even when we're talking about bioenergetic issues uh, and metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes and the linkage of that with, of course, an insulin resistance. So um, I will tell you, though, that if you look at a synopsis of oleic acid in nutritional literature, it will tell you, at least at one 
level of that publication, um, large S, that insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, which of course are very powerful uh, pathophysiological associations to dyslipidemia, that all of that can be uh, somewhat recalled or ameliorated by high oleic acid in the diet because there's a lot of the literature, a largesse of some of that literature will tell us that it improves mitochondrial function, endothelial function, uh, pancreatic beta cell activity. It will also, oleic acid has been suggested to diminish the amount of glucolipotoxicity and the inflammatory response, oxidative stress, uh, programmed cell death, which I just told you also could be a negative aspect when we're talking about cancer, but also at the level of the uh, production of POMC peptides and the control over the NPY, a goody-related protein in the hypothalamus. And I did discuss that a great deal several times when we went through aging. So you can see that oleic acid seems to have a plenum of positive effects on uh, endocrine hormones, mitochondrial function, inflammatory response, um, and the ones I just mentioned, including uh, a control over reactive oxygen. Okay, so we know that in Western society societies there has been a great increase in the sedentary lifestyle, which I talked about last time, and also in the consumption of high carbohydrate foods. And in some instances, an increase in the amount of total lipid in the diet. And the World Health Organization and the American Medical Association and the nutritional societies all came out, the AMA as well, the American Medical Association, all came out back in the late 70s and talked about how fats in the diet, lipids in the diet, were contributing to cardiovascular disease, particularly papers began to be published about saturated fatty acids being a bad player for atherosclerosis. And so that literature then led to the nutritionists to come up with the so-called Mediterranean diet, which of course is diminished in saturated fatty acids, but enhanced in oleic acid. Now you will recall that the novo fatty acid synthesis in the liver and in all the cells uh, in the human body, main end product is palmitate and then sterate after elongation, right? And so, indeed, those are saturated fatty acids. And you also know there's a very active sterocoid desaturase, which will take palmitate and sterate and make palmitoleic and oleic acid. I told you about the superinduction of that desaturase at the level of transcription. And then after transcription, we talked about protein activity was collinear. Remember all of that. So you have to keep in mind that even though saturated fatty acids in the diet have been implicated in atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease, the body compensates for low levels of fats in the diet by increasing the amount of saturated fatty acids. And the amount of saturated fatty acids almost always end up being converted to unsaturated fatty acids because of the superinduction of the desaturases. And so you end up not only with oleic acid, but with dead end 
delta 9, delta 7 uh, positional isomers of long chain fatty acids of the C20 and C22 variety, which would otherwise become competitors as substrates for the delta 5 and delta 60 saturates and the elongase reactions, which allows for the correct processing of the essential fatty acids, the lactic and alpha lactic. So that whole thing I just said to you should make you have some doubt about why saturated fatty acids in the diet would be so detrimental and monounsaturated so beneficial. When I'm telling you the body regulates that very well, thank you, at multiple levels of gene expression, and, of course, enzymatic activity and lipid turnover. Now, it's been suggested that oleic acid in animal studies, again, this is mouse studies, rabbit studies, and rat studies, has pretty much suggested that high oleic acid can actually decrease obesity and decrease the incidence of type 2 diabetes along with diminishing obesity. I can tell you a lot of those papers were done without the proper kinds of controls. So they would allow oleic acid to compete with saturated fatty acids, but they didn't always use equimolar amounts or isocaloric amounts of those two dietary lipids in these animal studies. And I can tell you there are many papers I personally reviewed that were rejected because of this lack of good control in those experiments. Now, of course, there are papers that do have good control, and they some of them do tend to support the beneficial effects of monounsaturated fatty acids, but not nearly at the level of valence that the um, popular press or the media talks about or describes, okay? Um, so I want you to know that the literature does not support that monounsaturated fatty acids are always going to be cytoprotective, particularly when it comes to type 2 diabetes, right? No matter what you take into the diet, if it's calorically dense and it's sufficient sedentary lifestyles associated with that, that is lack of exercise, you as a human are going to gain body mass in the form of depot fat. And that depot fat can be synthesized quite readily from carbohydrate. And I told you that's exactly what happens with high sucrose containing foods. So keep that in mind when you think or when you are led to believe that simply increasing the amount of oleic acid in the diet is going to decrease <laughs> your ability to gain weight or to put on depot fat, or to generate atherosclerosis associated with type 2 diabetes, because that's not the case. Okay. It's really a matter of kilocalories in the diet and exercise. Now, <clears throat> again, if you look at the literature, <laughs> there are papers that will suggest that pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL-6, tumor necrosis factor alpha, can be decreased in when you look at animal studies when they're fed high oleic acid. Now, again, why might that be? Well, it could be because high oleic acid is going to inhibit the steroid-CoA desaturase intracellularly. And that may have some positive effect on saturated fatty acid utilization for beta oxidation, you see. So, 
Saturated fatty acids actually can be increased when you increase monounsaturated fatty acids in the diet because oleic acid will actually act as an inhibitor of esterocoidosaturates. I think I mentioned that last time. If I didn't emphasize it, I just did. Okay. So there have been papers that suggest that when you look at a diet rich in saturated fatty acids versus monounsaturated fatty acids, particularly oleic acid, and again, with vegetable oils like olive oil, which are, can be as much as 80% oleate, canola oil somewhere between 60 to 70%, depending on um, the particular brand of canola oil, that these seem to be um, touted as improving health. And I'm telling you that although the animal studies sometimes have demonstrated this in terms of even insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, it's not clear that oleic acid is functional in the uh, direct inhibition of those pathophysiological responses. Okay. And so I'm not going to go through a series of papers to defeat oleic acid as a positive nutrient and then come up with an equal number of papers, which will suggest that oleic acid has a positive effect on certain pathophysiological responses. I'm going to leave you with that understanding that there is an equal valence. And if you look at the real biochemistry of it as a lipid uh, biochemist, and I have done exactly that, you do not find a propensity of papers that say that high levels of oleic acid actually do decrease obesity, type 2 diabetes, and therefore metabolic syndrome and the associated insulin resistance. And that's what I'm telling you. Now, paper that was published in prostaglandins and other lipid mediators this year tells us the following. Diabetic nephropathy is, of course, a well-known complication of diabetes. It's a microvascular event. And that directly, that nephropathy, which is, of course, a kidney issue, is a high morbid and high mortality uh, concern in diabetic, type 2 diabetic patients. Okay, This has been well studied. So let's dig into this paper a little bit and find out what it tells us. Tells us that the one of the eicosanoid producing oxygenating enzymes known as cyclooxygenase. So you have cyclooxygenase known as COX or COX. There's multiple forms of that enzyme. And you also have LOX or lipoxygenases. You have three or four forms of that enzyme. And then you have the P450 monooxygenases. All three of those will provide you with eicosanoids, that is oxygenated very long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. Now, the eicosa, of course, means C20, but you can have C22 and C18 as well. So another name for eicosanoids, because they were first described in the prostate, are prostanoids. And these include frank prostaglandins, right? We talked about these many times. And we know that prostaglandins can be pro-inflammatory, hence the diabetic nephropathy, you see, because that's going to be an inflammatory issue in the kidney. 
So patients with diabetic kidney disease, that's called DKD, are at a much greater risk of essentially developing as a sequelae, the much more dangerous end-stage kidney disease. And that, of course, is ESKD. And this is, these are patients that end up needing dialysis, okay? Either that or even kidney transplant, if that's possible, or so-called renal replacement therapy, RPT, okay? But and the reason that you might end up like that if you're obese and you have diabetes and you get, a, get end up getting diabetic nephropathy is because... Once you're at the level of ESKD, end-stage kidney disease, the risk for mortality is very, very high, okay? And if it, mortality doesn't occur, non-fatal cardiovascular events can be um, also um, thrown into the mix. Now, papers that looked at the rodent model have not been as straightforwardly useful when looking at human studies, when examining the whole prostaglandin biosynthetic route in association with diabetic nephropathy. Told you that they're linked. and the animal studies, it's more robust and clear. In human studies, it is not. But we have studied cyclooxygenase prostaglandin biosynthesis in association with endothelial function and the development of diabetic nephropathy. And so that's what I really want to key in on. That's what this paper is talking about. It's a brand new paper. In fact, it's not even out yet. It won't be in print until April of this year. So we've got at least another full month. But what this paper basically is telling me is this. Cyclooxygenase, of course, is going to produce from arachidonate or from icosapentaenoate or from docosahexanoate, various icosanoids. When prostaglandin are generated directly from 20 colon 4 omega-6 arachidonic acid, you make prostaglandin H2 specific type, specific molecular species of prostaglandin. And it's, for short, it's called PGH2. And of course, that reaction, the cyclooxygenase reaction, is a two-step enzymatic uh, activity. So the PGH2 is ultimately converted then to the much more bioactive prostanoid, including the PGE2 derivative, but also PGI2, also known as prostacyclin. And then the couple that I have hit upon with uh, obesity before, PGF2-alpha, and PGD2, as well as the thromboxanes from uh, TXA2. So you have prostaglandin sensus strictu and thromboxane sensus strictu synthases that are subsequent to the COX activity. So you have this whole family of molecular species of psychooxygenase-derived prostanoids. And they will function autocrine and paracrine to control cell surface receptors that are G-protein-linked coupled receptors. And these are directly involved in controlling kidney function 
hence the association with diabetic nephropathy. And the functional changes and physiological stress associated with the production of these prostanoids, including the thromboxanes and the prostaglandins, is where we get into the direct details of these responses. So PGE2 becomes the most abundant prostanoid in the kidney. And of the four PGE2 receptors, because all of these prostaglandins will bind to specific receptors, don't you know? These aren't simply compounds that are generated, do their function uh, at, at a enzymatic uh, or altering enzymatic activity. They actually have receptors. Prostaglandins have their own receptors. So very quickly, you have PGE2 receptors and the EP4 receptor is the one you find in the kidney glomerulus. And it is the one that's directly related and, and reacts with and binds, binds with affinity to stimulate the GS protein or the stimulatory G proteins. And from that, you get signaling, which ultimately leads to um, cyclic AMP synthesis. And this is where you get into the full-blown metabolic activity. I'm going to lead you with that really, really cliffhanger there, cyclic AMP being produced in this metabolic pathway because I'm running out of time. So I'm going to pick up on that next lecture, but now you're well into talking about a particular condition of diabetes called nephropathy. And I'm dealing with now how lipids are involved in it at the level of prostaglandin biosynthesis and prostaglandin binding to the specific G protein couple receptors in the glomerulus of the kidney. Okay. So that's where we're leaving and I will pick it up next time. This is your professor, Dr. Daniel J. Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 23rd of February saying bye for now.